This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. Bauer is one of those ideal small towns in America. There is no crime. Houses aren't locked up. People talk positively to one another. People look after one another. And its popularity has grown. This is the setting for Amy Suter Clark's latest book, Lay Your Body Down. Welcome back, Amy. Thank you so much, Jan. Your last book, Girl 11, was a crime thriller set in Minnesota, and that is where Dell is living now. But she grew up in Bauer. When she moved there, her name was questioned by Pastor Rick Franklin. What did he decide for her? Uh, he decided that the name Delilah was too promiscuous and had too much history and context that he didn't want in his church, so he demanded that she go by the name Lila, and suddenly that was her name. She had an unusual name, and her two best friends were Esha and Eve. They had unusual backgrounds. Yes, both were adopted into a white family in the church, and Eve is also white, but Esha is an Indian-American, and so a transracial adoptee, and so they both have quite different experiences while being in the same family. Because poor people and coloured people really weren't part of the church congregation. No, people of colour really weren't uh, welcome. And, you know, there would be that kind of vibe that you were, but the feeling that you got as soon as you got there would make it clear that that wasn't true. So Lila left to go to college after an awkward circumstance. She calls it a blip at 16 or where everything happened with Noah. But she returned with Lars Orbeck very proudly. Yes, absolutely. Well, because she grew up in the type of church where women are raised from the time they're girls to be good housewives, finally finding a godly young man who was proud to carry her on his arm was something that she was taught to seek from the time she was a teenager. So when she finally found that person and was able to come back to her community victorious, It was a much more exciting experience for her. Oh, yes. And Lars, working there as an associate pastor at the Messiah Church. However, what happened to change this ideal wish? Her so-called best friend, Eve, decided that Lars was going to be her man. And again, suddenly he was. (laughs) Suddenly he left her for Eve and she left the community in disgrace. When Eve was 16 years old, Pastor Rick's sermons on marriage and family life really influenced her. So what did Eve start writing? She started writing a blog, which became a huge viral sensation, kind of a similar thing to the whole trade wife or trad wife movement that's happening on social media now, promoting this old school, you know, 1950s white America idea of you know, the demure housewife who stays home and makes the home and makes dinner while the husband goes off to work. Well, let's let's just hear <laughs> one paragraph of one of the very, very early blogs. Pastor Rick tells us women are created to serve, to be pure, to submit, to be a delight to their husbands. Who are we to deny the very nature our creator has built within us? Oh. The title, Lay Your Body Down, comes from something else in the book. If you are willing to let him hold your dreams and worries, to lay your body down for him, you can trust that any decision he makes for you 
is the right one. Now you've said that the popularity of this blog has made Lars and Eve the poster couple for um, the Messiah Church, which have brought in new people and new donations to the church. So it's moved from just a, a modest congregation to a mega church. Now, uh, page 28 has, has a little bit about, you know, why people are drawn to it. Absolutely. On Sunday mornings, with the welcome music floating through the speakers and several hundred congregants fueling up on coffee before the hours-long service, this place sounds like a stadium before a big game. It's exciting, electric. It makes you feel like you're part of something. Our character that we follow in this, Delilah, who's Lila, now Del, why does she choose to return to Messiah after six years? Well, she is scrolling through social media one night and sees the picture of Lars, which immediately draws her attention. And then underneath that, she finds a bunch of comments saying, you know, more or less rest in peace and realizes horrifyingly that he has suddenly died. And when she finds out that there's a funeral taking place at Messiah Church where she grew up, she decides she just has to go back for it because a few days before he died, he left her voicemail on her phone and she had been waiting to call him back, trying to punish him a little bit for all of the hurt that he caused her. And now she'll never get a chance to know what he was going to tell her. So she comes back to the funeral. Is she welcomed? Oh, well, she's not turned away at the door because that's not the way you do things in a small town, a uh, small Minnesota town, but she is certainly not welcome. And she feels immediately eyes on her, wondering what she's doing there. And, you know, that level of judgment and scrutiny that she tried so hard to escape is alive and well again. <sighs> So she doesn't feel comfortable even staying with her parents. You know, they're calling her Delilah. So it's a motel room in a neighbouring town and the possibility for the job. Doing what and whom for? <laughs> <laughs> well, unfortunately, Delilah's life has not gone quite to plan. She's quite stunted in her maturity and doesn't really know how to make a life for herself. She has sort of a useless college degree, so she is a very experienced bartender. And when she goes to a nearby restaurant for dinner one night and finds out their waitress quit in a huff, she offers to take the job and stay around for a little while to see if she can figure out what really happened to Lars? Because she's not convinced it was mm. just a hunting accident, which is what everyone else is saying happened. And of course, the whole of the restaurant is run by the very nice Finn. Yes, well, having a hot manager is always a draw for a young woman of uh, Dell's description. So that certainly doesn't do any harm to her decision to make uh, make a go for that job. Ah, oh, but it, look, it's terrifying. She goes back to her motel room and what's happened? She goes back to her motel room and it's clearly been ransacked, broken into. Nothing's been taken, but there is a scripture verse written in her lipstick on the mirror and it has very violent connotations and makes her pretty terrified to even stay there for another night. And then there's the, the scary stuff, the phone calls, the uh, scratching on the window. It's look. <laughs> so why does she stay longer? Well, because, you know, she doesn't want to back down and she kind of feels women are always kind of telling ourselves we're being overdramatic or we're overreacting to scary situations. And so she thinks, you know, this is just B-grade horror movie stuff. Like someone's just trying to scare me. I'm not going to let that work. But 
it does end up working. It's Lars's parents, Nathaniel and Susan. What? Do, how do they feel about Dell? Well, so they were at the funeral and they actually asked Dell to stay around and ask questions because they, while they loved their son, they didn't really love that he was part of this very conservative community. So they think something else is going on as well. And so Nathaniel actually calls Delilah and offers to let her stay at their place. And, you know, being a quite poor, (laughs) out of work uh, young woman, she doesn't turn down an opportunity for a free place to stay, especially when she's feeling unsafe. So that works out for her and also allows her more access to who Lars was at the moment, because she hasn't actually spoken to him in six years. The parents aren't instantly informed about their son's death. And when it does come out, it's the sheriff and Pastor Rick who give the media every all its knowledge. And Dell also finds that many things in Barra are authorised or owned by the Messiah Church. So how's this church run? It is run at the behest of Pastor Rick Franklin and with almost no accountability whatsoever, despite the appearance of accountability in an all-male elder board. They all sign off on anything that Rick wants and don't hold him responsible for anything that goes badly. It's all just sort of swept under the rug. You know, the local sheriff and many of his deputies attend the church. Most of the local business owners attend the church. So there's a huge incentive for all of them to keep things running as they are. There's a very handsome associate, a pastor. Yes. Keith Rivers. Now, he has a calming counterpoint to Pastor Rick's audacious firebrand. That's a quote. (laughs) (laughs) Dal remembers him having a big crush on Eve during high school. Now, there's the thought that there could possibly be an affair going on. Yes, that's her first suspicion because she sees them talking quite closely and in what would be a completely inappropriate context in that kind of church, speaking individually at her husband's funeral and embracing in a way that she finds very inappropriate. So her first instinct is to think that Eve must have been having an affair with Keith Mm -hmm. and that they or one or both of them made sure that Lars died to get him out of the way because, of course, divorce is also not acceptable in this kind of community. Oh, the plot gets thicker. (laughs) (laughs) Then, of all things, Eve is arrested for Lars' death and Eve passes on some cryptic information to Del. Finn has a friend who is a journalist and wants Del to talk to her. So we are going to finish in these words. I want to find out what happened to Lars, but airing Messiah's dirty laundry to a journalist will do much more than that, especially if I really tell them everything. With the right reporter and the right evidence, I could shine a light on all the toxic, controlling messages Pastor Rick has been preaching for years. I could expose the dark underbelly of the noble wife movement. I might even be able to show how his propaganda has infiltrated every corner of the town. I could be the one to end his legacy, destroying a mighty man by betraying him to the people he sees as the enemy. I am Delilah, after all. Can she? Can she prove? Well, what she got? She, how, the elders, how would they react to a collective anger of dozens of women, not when they're used to our silent obedience? And... Look, I was absolutely fascinated with this book. I think you've just described 
why people put into this situation remain in it. And uh, you've got a bit of an accent. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I am from Minnesota originally, yeah. And you were part of a smallish group like this. Yes. I mean, everybody in this book and the church that it's surrounding is obviously fictional, but I did grow up in a small Minnesota community in a very um, insular conservative church. And then I've also attended mega churches later in life. So I didn't have to do very much research, unfortunately. (laughs) (laughs) So the manipulation of scripture to suit a patriarchal system? Some some level of experience with that. I'm sure I'm sure many women listening to this probably have some level of experience with that. Another thought provoking crime novel by Amy Souter Clark. Instead of podcasts concentrating on cold case murders as she did with Girl Eleven, this time she has ta- taken a cult like church and exposed it in Lay Your Body Down. Oh, well done, Amy. Thank you so much. Well, small, isolated communities in the country often have their own culture, and we find something similar in uh, the book I'm about to discuss. The Southern Aurora Train last ran between Melbourne and Sydney in 1986, but Mark Brandy has used that iconic name as the title of his latest book. So, Mark, welcome back to 3CR. It's great to be back, David. Thanks for having me. Let's start with this notion of trains. But then, just as the sun is beginning to set, I can hear something. Sam does too, and he stands up. Don't get your hopes up, I say. It might be just the freight. But when it starts coming around the bend, I know straight away it isn't freight. The engine is bigger on those ones, and they're slower. It's the Southern Aurora. It has all its lights on, and it looks pretty incredible. All bright, shiny steel. It toots its horn as it gets near, and Sam covers his ears. There aren't as many people in the carriages as other times, but... We wave all the same. None of them wave back. It must be too dark for them to see. The train. What does it represent? Yeah, the Southern Aurora train. Um, Now, I'm not a train spotter, David, so I I don't profess to be an expert on the subject, but it was a train that ran from the mid-60s up until 1986 from Melbourne to Sydney and vice versa. And for Jimmy in this town of Mitagunda, which is halfway between Melbourne and Sydney, he's in very difficult circumstances, a a very disadvantaged disadvantaged household. Um, His mum has a drinking problem. His older brother's in jail. Life's pretty tough. And so this train that travels through Mitagunda, it's a really potent symbol of something beyond the town, something beyond his, his existence. And so he sees it coming through and sees the first-class carriages and goes, wow, you know, he says to his younger brother, Sam, that could be us one day going to Melbourne or Sydney. And so it's a really potent symbol of hope for Jimmy. But it also means a way of escape, you know, a future beyond. It also means a return because uh, Mark, we'll find out more about him later, uh, can come back on the train. And just this also moment of escape for a young child in a small town, nothing to do. So it's got all of those sorts of, that power in the story uh, as we go along. And also then, 1986, let's just touch on this because you're far too young, but uh, (laughs) all the references there to, well, pre-1986, I remember Get Smart. I remember uh, Dynasty and uh, Hey Hey, It's Saturday and all of those other iconic 
elements. Mm. You would have. Did you do much research on that era? Or? I think I'm older than what you think, Dave, <laughs> because I remember that period very clearly. In fact, I think I remember that period sometimes with greater clarity than what happened last week. Like it's a really vivid time to me. Um, I think that pre sort of digital age in Australia and particularly in rural communities was re- really interesting time um and I, I think what it sort of creates too for for jimmy and his circumstance is even a greater feeling of isolation in a lot of ways than what we have nowadays i think communities are a lot more connected nowadays in many respects but for jimmy in this town of mitigunda you know to to get out of that environment just seems like an enormous step and getting to the story Everything's told from Jimmy's point of view, a child's point of view. And Jimmy's life is actually more complicated than even he actually realises. His mother is in a relationship with Charlie and um, Charlie tries to teach Jimmy how to swim. How does he go about doing that? (laughs) So he takes takes Jimmy out. It seems like kind of a... A noble thing he's doing in a way because he knows that Jimmy can't swim and takes him out to a dam at a mate's farm, this mate Bluey. And it's this isolated dam out in the middle of a paddock and he ties a rope around him and basically makes him stand on one side of the dam. He goes around the other side and he just tells him to start swimming, just to dive in. And of course, Jimmy Jimmy struggles with this. Well, it's... On the verge of child abuse, really, in in that regard. Yeah, well, <laughs> I think people had uh, a different approach to um, parenting and being a guardian in those days. Well, but Charlie's got his own problems mm. in many ways. He's a return vet from Vietnam, so he's got um, challenges mm. as well. So taking this approach to helping a child swim seems rather out of kilter. Charlie takes the family on a camping trip. And uh, Jimmy's perception, I can feel something changing. It's mostly in the air between him and mum. And so we get this understated sort of referencing to something much larger that Jimmy can't quite put his finger on, but he knows is occurring. How were you able to get into that child mindset? Yeah, I, you know, kids are really like like sponges in a lot of ways and I think even when they can't quite articulate what's going on around them they they can sense that something's not quite right often the the motivations of adults in a child's life are largely opaque and so they don't really know why their parents might be doing something why this new boyfriend is acting in the way he is but he suspects something's up and I think what's interesting with Jimmy and I think this is true of a lot of kids is that they tend to internalize what's going on around them so they will not fully grasp that you know Charlie's a bit damaged he's a Vietnam vet and this is you know the situation his mum's got a drinking problem and it's causing conflict he tends to internalise it and go, what can I do to control this? Or is this my fault? And this is a lot of what kids do. And it comes out all the time. I mean, you referenced uh, his mother's drinking problem. Um, when I get home from school, I have to check the Kaiser to see how heavy it is because that's the only way to tell. And Kaiser's the old 
icon is a stool. In, a stool. Stool yeah. in, in, in the, in the um, cask. That's right. Because his mother's got a, a drinking problem. But he, and here's the go. He confides then in Sam. Now, Sam has uh, some type of syndrome. So he can't quite articulate what it is. But he says to Sam um, that, yeah, mum's got a drinking problem. And it's Jimmy articulating the problem to someone who can't understand, and yet Jimmy, in a sort of way, feels better for having voiced it. Mm. It's this tentative approach to all of the real problems that are going on underneath. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I think that relationship with, with Sam is is crucial for Jimmy because... He cares for Sam. Sam's obviously got learning difficulties. He's a few years younger, but he he is is a confidant for for Jimmy. He's an outlet for him to share his problems in his life. I think you know the the, the issue with young young people and children internalizing that kind of bad stuff happening around them is that that often has lifelong repercussions to just beyond the circumstances. Often that will do a lot of damage which people carry into adulthood, um, ways of thinking about things where they, they do internalise um, uh, problems around them. So I'm kind of really drawn to writing about that that period in people's life because I, I think it's very crucial. Another relationship there is with his older brother Mick. Mick's actually in prison, but very early on in, in the prologue, the uh, family dog has been shot uh, Jimmy thinks it might be his fault, internalising the problem. But his brother turns to him at one stage, about halfway home, and, and says, are you all right? And it's almost like this, this moment of Mick recognising emotion in Jimmy or the potential for it. Jimmy is never come across this from his older mm. brother before. Yeah. And it's just this moment of, of sort of awareness for Jimmy about... That, that emotions exist, but they've never been articulated. Well, that's right, yeah. Um, and I think that it's a real... It, it's great you hit upon that moment because it's a, a really crucial moment of, of tenderness, I think, between between Mick and, and Jimmy. And yet Mick's a rather violent individual. He has his own issues. He's quite a volatile guy. And, you know, it's, it's a very different dynamic that that Jimmy has with Mick compared to, to Sam. But all of these repressed emotions then between the family members, Charlie and the mother, uh, Mick and, uh, well, yeah, and everybody else, uh, and, and such like, and, and they're never really brought into the open. It's Jimmy trying to find his way through all of these. But now we get to the quintessential moment, the billy cart race. <laughs> and, it, and it seems such an innocuous novel sort of thing. Mm. But uh, Jimmy's got Danny as his friend. They've uh, sort of taken Chadwick on board or Luke, but he's from a diff the other side of the railway tracks is Chadwick. They've got money. Mm. But there are problems then that emerge around this billy cart race. There are two billy carts and a problem during the race. So... What are the two billy carts and what's the problem there? Yeah, so so Chadwick has this really flash billy cart that his, his dad made for him, uh, which they, they name Quiet Sam. And 
Meanwhile, Jimmy has this old billy cart, the Firefox, that his brother built years ago, which is a bit shambolic. It's a bit rough. Isn't anywhere near as good as as Chadwick's. But Don helps him repair it. That's right, Don, the bus driver. So the first thing is, you know, which one should he use and why? And Mm. so there could be a conflict there. They go with Quiet Sam, but there's a problem during the race. Yes, at the very beginning of the race, in fact, that the um, the steering wheel is pulled left, and so at the, the starting line they can't get going. Well, and this basically, they lose the race, but mm. then what does that do to the relationship between Danny, Chadwick and Jimmy? Yeah, look, there's some shifting sands there, and I think that's really tough for Jimmy to navigate. Because, you know, Danny's been his best friend the whole way through. But this is the more important relationship for Jimmy in many ways. We've talked about the relationship with his mother, his older Mm. brother, Sam, which for an adult reader seemed to be more profound, more concerning. And yet for Jimmy, it's the immediacy and the moment of, do I have a friend with Jimmy and Chadwick? What's, you know, that... Mm. A child's perspective on all of that's taking place. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I mean, he can't really get a handle on those those bigger forces in his life, but he he tries to to manage what's immediate to him. And I think he engages in a little bit of magical thinking too. You know that if if they win the Billy Cart race, everything's going to be solved. Well. It also then goes back to the Southern Aurora because, you know, if Mick comes back on the Southern Aurora, so he's been in prison, everything will be fine. Mm. And so it's all this representation of what's going to arrive uh, without realising that they're not actually addressing the problems. For Jimmy not being able to recognise them, but for the reader, that accentuates Mm. the problems that are there. And then if the Southern Aurora arrives with Mick... Will the family problems be solved? Which we can't tell the listener. <laughs> no, that's right. That's right. The, the listener, because Mick does come back mm. uh, and we find challenges ahead there. Yes. Uh, what's going to happen uh, between, with the relationship between uh, Jimmy's mother and, and Charlie? Uh, and so will poor Jimmy... Um, recover from the loss of the Billy Cart race. Yes. So all of these concerns we will find in Mark Brandy's book, Southern Aurora, and it's a Hachette release, Jan. Well, I think all of those brothers and sons should have gone to a, one of the cult churches then they could blame it all on, on the, the women. And, and well, basically they could ask forgiveness and all would be set right. Absolutely. <laughs> that would be the way to go. And, of course, I was talking with Amy Suda-Clark on her book, Lay Your Body Down. So both of you got new books in the offing? Yes, I'm working on one right now. Yeah, I am working on one. I'm... Uh, superstitious, so I don't tend to talk about it. But, there is, there but is another one. child's perspective? Uh, no, no, adult and contemporary. Because your previous works have been one of them. Looking. Yeah, Wimmera was. Yeah, um, and also the others was child's yeah. perspective. So yeah. no, this one's uh, adult viewpoint. Ah. We'll, see, we'll see how it comes out. I shouldn't talk about it any no. further. No, 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 well, well, Amy, what about you? Minnesota again? 
Yeah, I am writing another book set in Minnesota in a fictional town, but more of a suburban city town. Does it help living in Melbourne to be able to write about Minnesota being that distance? I think it does a little bit. I I wonder sometimes if I'll ever be able to write a book set in Melbourne. I feel like it, it doesn't quite belong to me as a city yet, but I have been here for almost a decade, so maybe at some point <laughs> I'll feel confident at least writing the perspective of an American who comes to Melbourne. <laughs> well, there's always crime, Amy. Yes, there's always crime. There's and there's always crime. a book next week, Jane. Two, I hope. <laughs> okay, thanks for listening and next week. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR.